Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in to Unscripted, presented by Be Unique Magazine, because an authentic life is unscripted. Be Unique is a 501c3 charity that works today to change tomorrow. Learn more at our website, beunique.org. That's B-U-N-E-K-E dot org. Did you know that Be Unique is a free, non-profit publication? We work today to change tomorrow by bringing you truly amazing guests like the one we'll introduce tonight and by highlighting stories about people all over the world who will astound you. The free digital version is available 24-7 at BeUnique.org. That's B-U-N-E-K-E dot org. Everybody, this is your host, Mary Brotherton. I'm here with my co-host, Jennifer East. And tonight we have Doug White, who is our special guest. He is a leader in the nation's philanthropic community. He's an author of five books, a teacher and advisor to nonprofit organizations and philanthropists. Doug is the co-chair of the Foolproof Foundation's Walter Conkright Project Committee, and a governing board member of the Secular Coalition of America. He's the former director of Columbia University's Master of Science in Fundraising Management program, where, in addition to his extensive management responsibilities, he taught board governance, ethics, and fundraising. That's something we need to talk about. He's also the former academic director of New York University's Heyman Center for for Philanthropy and Fundraising. He's been an advisor to BoardSource, the nation's leading organization dedicated to building exceptional nonprofit boards and inspiring board service. And most recently, he completed a comprehensive review of the media allegations against the Wounded Warrior Project, the first causality, casualty. (laughs) I'm having trouble with my words. This was a report addressing the allegations made against the Wounded Warrior Project in 2016. That report has been expanded into a book called Wounded Charity, and it was just recently published. And I think I already said, but that is bringing your total to five, if I'm not correct. Is it not, Doug? That is correct, Mary. It's a total of five. It's hard to believe because they each take so much work, but yes, five. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being with you tonight. You're very, very welcome. Um, I know that you had mentioned that a lot of the criticism of the Wounded Warrior Project was unfounded. Can you tell us what the media got wrong about that charity? Pretty much everything. <laughs> the, the media, I have to say at the beginning, though, that I am not a critic in terms of what the media does wrong all the time. I have a faith in the media, all media. I feel that in general, uh, reporters try to get things right. And it's a tough job. Journalism is not an easy profession. 
And I understand that there are going to be mistakes. And I also understand that there's going to be a point of view. No matter how you write something, there's going to be a point of view. So the idea of an objective story is pretty much a mythical objective for me. And the example I use when I teach is that if someone says that it's not raining and someone else says it's sunny, they're basically both factually correct, but they're sending very different images out. And so Absolutely. The, the job of a journalist is to try to capture the context and the truth of what did happen. And I think that for the most part, uh, that does happen. Now, there's varying degrees within that, but I, I do believe that, that journalists make that effort. In this particular case, there were very large media organizations, both CBS News and the New York Times, who undertook to write a story about Wounded, Wounded Warrior Project, which ended up to be pretty wrong on every count. And let me give you an example of what they said happened at Wounded Warrior Project that, that, didn't, that didn't happen. The allegation was that they were spending too much money on frivolous things like parties and booze and not enough money on servicing the clientele they have, wounded veterans who come home from war. And, of course, immediately the uh, careful listener will hear the phrase too much and, and understand that that itself is a subjective phrase. But the idea was to show that Wounded Warrior Project was spending too much money on things that just didn't matter and not enough on what did matter. And this is the largest veterans organization in the United States. So let's really find out uh, how they're doing things wrong. And so they said that they were spending 60 cents on the dollar as opposed to more for veterans. And this was just a terrible, terrible thing. So went the story. So there are two parts to just dissect that. One is that I would not say that 60 cents on the dollar is necessarily a bad thing because you take a snapshot of that number and you don't get a full picture. And two, it wasn't 60 cents. It was closer to 80 cents. So they got the wow. factually wrong. They got the factually wrong and narratively wrong. And so that was a big story. And that was, that was the same story in the Times and on CBS. There was that. Um, and then on top of that, they claimed that uh, Steve Nardizzi, the CEO, had been frivolously spending money and uh, earning too much money. And again, that phrase itself is, again, subjective, but an analysis of what, what people make at organizations that raise $400 million, which is where Wounded Warrior was at the time, uh, he was making about what everybody else was making. Was it a lot of money? Well, yeah, it was. It was close to all $500,000, a little bit less, but let's say $500,000. It was a lot of money. There's no question about that. But when you look at organizations that raise that kind of money, $400 million or so, he was right in the middle of it all. So was he making too much? Well, that's another, that's another question. But was he making too much relative to other people who are doing the similar work? And the answer was no. He was he was right in the middle of that. So then another part of the report said that they had spoken to someone who used to work at the IRS, and his complaint about Wounded Warrior Project is that they didn't show the people they were serving on their 990. The 990 is the organization's form they send to the IRS. 
And that's true, but there are two other things that need to be said in the context of that statement. One is there's no place on that 990 on that form that asks who you're, who you're serving in terms of a, a large group of people. The question exactly. is not asked. And then on top of that, they do respond to that question, just not on the 990. They do show on their website uh, the groups of people they're helping, and they have a, a, an extensive amount of information about, um, about their work. So CBS came off saying, oh, well, we, we see this charity spending so much money and it's being spent frivolously. We've, we've interviewed 40 people, and they all say the same thing. And they didn't say that they were all disgruntled ex-employees. And they were only able to get one person on camera to identify himself. And that was Eric Millett. And they basically based their story on his testimony. And it was really quite a travesty because he came back from uh, Afghanistan and he was injured. He had uh, two categories of injury, uh, what's called post-traumatic stress disorder and TBI, mm-hmm. which, which is traumatic brain injury. And I have to tell you that knowing that fact alone tells me we have a lot to thank to Eric Bolat. There's no question in my mind that he has given a lot of his life for the ideals of this country. And you and I and everybody who listens and everybody else in the United States has a lot to thank him for. But Absolutely. that said, that said, CBS, I feel they used him. This is another, another issue for me personally. I feel they used him. He became very dissatisfied. There's no, we don't know why he wouldn't speak with me. Uh, and he had been very, very happily in, in, employed at Wounded Warrior Project. And WWP, by the way, has a fair percentage, maybe 30 or 40 percent of its uh, employees are wounded vets. And he was one of them and did a great job of talking about how great the organization was. And then all of a sudden he, he turned and there, and there were, no one knows why. Uh, I think, you know, if I were to speculate, uh, he got into this narrative that Wounded Warrior Project was spending too much money and something was triggered and he just became very much an enemy of the organization, which is too bad. But yeah. what's bad is that the organization, excuse me, CBS, um, uh, used him and created the entirety of the story around that. And, and, and the New York Times essentially did the same thing. They talked to other people, too. But Dave Phillips, the author of, of the story in the, in the Times, the reporter, uh, did not use, not, not use any of the information that was provided to him that was positive. Nothing was used on either CBS or in the New York Times that was positive. And I, I, I had a personal relationship with this story beforehand because even though I didn't know anything about Wounded Warrior Project from an insider's perspective, I knew publicly what was going on. But Dave Phillips had called me some weeks earlier because he said he was doing a story. And he and I spoke nothing about this. We were talking about the normal give and take of growing a large organization very quickly and how important the organization was to the country and, and some of their challenges. But there were, and it was going to be an honest story. It was going to be, you know, there's some things that are 
are wrong here, but they're working on it. There, there are a lot of challenges. There are a lot of successes, that kind of a thing. That was not the story that people read in the Times. And I think uh, he he was persuaded to, or he persuaded himself to change that narrative to more align the salaciousness um, of the CBS story with his. So a lot of that story was just plain old wrong. And I can't go through all of that. We don't have the time, but it's in the book. And it's just horrible how point by point by point, I think I had 13 or 14 points in that story that were just wrong or misleading and and uh, was able to show from my own factual research where they were wrong and why they were wrong. And as I say, I, I, I think the world of journalism is a tough, tough world. And in writing the book, I, I thought of myself as a journalist. If I'm going to critique something, then I'm going to be darn sure that I do my own research and make sure it's accurate. So there's just a ton of stuff that was just wrong. And, and the organization is a was and continues to. It's not the same organization, but it's still a good organization. But when Eric Millette said that they're spending all their money on parties and booze and things like that, it was just incorrect, just a plain out false statement. And I attribute that to him not knowing really that much about the way charities are run. And I also mm-hmm. think that neither CBS nor the New York Times know how charities are run. But one particular allegation uh, hurt, and that was that he said that all of this money was being, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars were being spent on booze at conferences uh, on WWP's dime. And the reason that hurts, the reason that's kind of a personal insult as opposed to just a general one, is that one of the reasons that veterans come back with difficulties is depression. And Mm -hmm. there are, on average, 22 veterans who take their lives every day. Now, that's a staggering, I mean, like, Wow, that's profound. It's like it takes the air out of the conversation. Twenty-two per day. Well, one of the contributing factors to depression is alcoholism, and one of the major programs, and there were several, but one of the major programs at Wounded Warrior Project was designed to combat alcoholism. The fact of the matter is mm-hmm. that over thousands and thousands of receipts at conferences for the national conferences for the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, a total of two receipts totaling $10 over a seven-year period were found to have been charged to WWP. They had a very strict, and I think they still do, a very strict policy to ensure that they weren't promoting alcohol uh, activity at all. Now, that isn't to say that people couldn't buy drinks on their own or that the board members wouldn't have drinks at their meetings, but it was a plain-out falsehood to suggest that Wounded Warrior Project would condone uh, drinking at its gatherings and, on top of that, pay for anybody's drinks. So that was really – it wasn't the worst allegation in terms of dollars and cents, but it was sure hurtful given the, given the mission of, of Wounded Warrior Project. That's a shame. Yeah, that, that's um, sad that they – Attack them in such a profound, untrue, unfair way. I believe so, and and so then, I don't know if you're 
leading me to this, but I'm being led <laughs> to say, <laughs> why would they do that? What, what, what would what would CBS gain from this kind of journalism, or what would the New York Times gain? Well, as I said before, Dave Phillips was already doing a story that he was, I think, going to make a fair uh, assessment of what was going on at the organization. And because it had grown so quickly and because its advertisements were on television so often, uh, a lot of people in the United States knew of this organization and they thought it was great. And so it's easy to take the the top dog and, and try to find fault with it. You see that with our presidential uh, campaigning right now. Uh, the person who gets to be number one in the polls tends to be the one who is b- being criticized the most or being asked the most mm-hmm. difficult questions. And th- that's okay. That's that's part of being in the number one slot. Um, and that's where WWP found itself and still does, by the way. But they were growing so quickly that the criticisms were starting to grow and grow. They were able to fight them off, and they did so. But that was one incentive, I think, where I think Dave Phillips was saying, oh, here's a great big organization. Let's take a look at it. I don't think he was going to go for the jugular or anything bad, but at the beginning anyway, I think it was going to be a a fairly well-balanced assessment of this large organization that does such good work. What happened was that CBS got wind of this fact. And they said, oh, ho, we want to do this story. And until Dave Phillips stopped talking to me, and he stopped talking to me because he understood where I was headed with my own research, before that time, he said that CBS was interested in this story, but he didn't know why. But then he said that 60 Minutes was going to do it, but they didn't have the time to do the proper research. Now, that particular phrase might not feel weird to the average person, but it felt weird to me because this was, as you probably are quite well aware, but for your listeners, this was called an evergreen story from the New York Times' perspective. There was no hook. There was no real need to get this out right away. and, and that was No expiration date. No expiration date. It's one of those stories that can you know live for a while and, Editors have to be, you know, careful not to let it go too long. But there was nothing, you know, like we're listening to the impeachment hearings today. That's here and now news. And so you've got to report on that in the here and now. That, this was not that kind of story. So the the idea was that he would put together this really long-form piece. And CBS came along, and they were going to do it quickly. And I was wondering, why did they feel the need to do it quickly? What was what was the rush? And Dave at that point said he didn't know. And so, um, uh, and just not to be too cryptic here, he stopped talking to me because he understood that I was going to be criticizing his own journalism in the New York Times. And I uh-huh. I account for this in the in the book too. So there's there's that story in there. But but the question was what, what what's the rush? If, if why doesn't sixty minutes have the time to do the proper research on this. And then on top of that, if the proper research can't be done by 60 minutes, doesn't CBS News have the same research uh, obligations as well if they're going to do a story? I mean, this is a national network, and so they would have the same obligation, it would seem to me. 
But no, this had to be done quickly. And clearly, based on the final product, it was done quickly and very badly. But so the question remained why. And, and this was really crucial to me because I felt that the journalism was lacking, to be honest with you. I mean, even though I said at the beginning this is a tough, a tough gig, journalism itself, and, and I had a lot of sympathy for journalists, within that scope I felt that this was a pretty poorly put-together story on both the New York Times and the CBS news reports. And so why is that? Well, it turns out that one of the board members, this is, this is going to be hard to understand, but I mean, not factually, but just like how would something like this happen? One of the board members of WWP is also a senior executive at CBS News, or no, excuse me, CBS Uh-oh. Corporation. So, <laughs> one of the one of the one of the allegations was that they weren't filing their their 990, the report that they have to give to the IRS. They weren't filing that correctly. Remember, I said at the beginning that it was 60 cents on the dollar, and they said 80 cents on the dollar, and and, uh-huh. and so there was that that disparity. And so they were saying that uh, not only was it 60 cents as a as a bad thing because so much more was going to overhead, but um, that 60 cents on the, that they had been reporting 80 cents, and that was being incorrectly reported. Well, <laughs> the person at, at the WWP board, this person, his name is Richard Jones. He was in charge of the finances. He was in charge of making sure that what was reported to the IRS was correct. So you have this bizarre situation where WWP is creating its financial reports, and all of those financial reports are being created correctly, by the way, as I learned. Uh, and CBS is, is, is criticizing WWP for basically lying on its 990, on, its, on the information that has to go to, to the IRS. And the person who could have cleared it all up in a heartbeat was Richard Jones, and he didn't do it. And why he didn't do it is another, we'll get to that perhaps, but that's another story. But this was so bizarre to me to find out that there was this connection between WWP and CBS to begin with, and having CBS News trash WWP, say, what's going on there? So it was more than just a story about bad reporting, and it certainly was not a story about a bad charity. Today, I'll go down and talk to people in a cocktail party or where I get my hair cut or at the coffee shop and just randomly say, have you ever heard of Wounded Warrior Project? And almost everybody has, Mary. Almost right. everybody. And they said, well, that's that charity that, you know, it was a false charity. That was the charity where they were spending all that money. They were stealing the money. That's how people take a story and then they extrapolate from that and they think the worst. And now all of a sudden, this is the charity that spent or, or stole all this money, all these donor dollars. And so that's right now the narrative in people's minds or a lot of people's minds. And the idea behind the report, as you mentioned earlier, and then what became the book, Wounded Charity, was to create that, that uh, a different narrative. Once a, st- once a story is told, it cannot be untold. We all know that. So I'm, I know that that's not going to happen. But what I do try to do is say, okay, here's the real story. 
I don't want to sound too haughty when I say the real story, because as I said earlier, a lot of journalism is, is subjective. And so there's going to be some, some kind of vague boundaries around what people call truth. But I, I do believe that this effort uh, was a better representation of trying to find the truth than what we saw then, what we saw in either the CBS stories or the uh, or the uh, the New York Times stories. Understood. I mean, it, it's like you have to dig a little bit to get to the to the answer, and I think that's vital. Um, it is. I, I have a question. And I, I also, that, oh, I'm sorry. go ahead, Jen. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, you know, it's it's just a shame that, you know, I can just imagine all the efforts that it, it took to get this, get Wounded Warrior to where it was at that time. And to be honest, when I, I was one of those folks that when I heard the report and, and I remember seeing, you know, it's like um, every other commercial seemed to have Wounded Warrior in the middle of the day, if you had, <laughs> if you ever had your television on. And um, I'm an artist, so I, I a lot of times keep my television on just for a company. Um, not that I'm really even watching, but anyways, and I just remember that all happening. And and when I hear what you're saying now, it's like it, it's just such a shame. I I didn't even know, honestly, that that all this controversy was going on because you just you do trust the media. Like you, I mean, everybody said you know you, you try not to or whatever or people say they tune it out or, but when it's on and you listen to it or, or it's, it's available and so many people have access to it, it's, it's really hard. It's like, who do you trust? Because you would think like CBS, you would totally trust them, but hearing your story and, and it's just intriguing and, and it's, 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 it's super unfortunate. I, I can't even imagine a nonprofit going through that. You know, when, when Steve Narduzzi, and Al Giordano, the CEO and the COO, who were ultimately fired. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment because that's itself an interesting story. But when they heard this story, when they were watching it, they knew it was coming. And when they watched it on television in their boardroom that evening, and it was, by the way, a three-part story. It was one evening on a Tuesday night and then the next morning and then the next night on top of that. It was a three-part three part story, two days. And they, Steve says, and I quote him in the book saying this it was not the organization it was not the same organization if you uh if you were to listen to it you would think they're talking about somebody else this was in no way the organization they were running in in no way so you wonder and i want to just reiterate just the other side of this for just a moment because it's important I have a high regard for CBS, and I have a high regard for the New York Times. I have a high regard for the Journal. I have the Wall Street Journal. I have a high regard for many, many organizations. But at the same time, I know that they can get it wrong. In this particular case, they got it really wrong, and it had such a horrible, horrible impact that it, it was newsworthy on that part alone. But you're right. You, you, you do – look, at the time, I was – teaching board governance and ethical decision-making at Columbia University. I was the director of the program, but I was also doing some teaching. And um, I told my students every at the beginning of every semester, we have an agenda, we have a syllabus here in front of you, but I want you to know, students, that during this semester, something will happen 
in the real world of nonprofits where we will divert from what we are going to be studying to study a real world problem. This happened and it happened every single semester. Something came along and that's one of the great things about the course that I was teaching, but it's also true about how dynamic the, the nonprofit world is. Something's always happening. Could it be the Red Cross? Could it be Coleman? Could it be Lance Armstrong? You know, it could be the, or the Salvation Army. It, it didn't matter. There was, I knew that something would be going on. And in this particular case, I, this happened. And I, I was thinking, well, we're going to do a story about, we're going to do a class or two on, on, how WWP screwed up. That was what I first thought. The very first moment that I saw this story, I thought, well, this is great fodder for the class. What happened, though, was that I got a call from a volunteer, and he said, this is not a true story. Now, why did I get a call from a volunteer? As I mentioned earlier, I had no connection with anybody at WWP. But what happened was that same week in late January 2016, as it happens, I had an article that was published in the Chronicle of Philanthropy that was very critical of an organization called Charity Navigator. And CBS News and New York Times both used Charity Navigator as a resource. They're the, they're the place where they've, they've got the 60-cent number as opposed to 80-cent number. Mm-hmm. And so I had criticized uh, Charity Navigator, not because of this story, because I'd written this article before that, but because I don't think very much of Charity Navigator. Let's just hold that thought for a moment. I don't think they do a very good job. So the volunteer who read this called me and said, would you would you talk to the CEO and the COO? And he didn't know where it was going to go. I was teaching at Columbia at the time. I said, sure, I'll be glad to talk to them. And I did. And they said, when, would you come down? And they're in Jacksonville, and I'm in New York. Would you come down? and do a soup to nuts kind of uh, review of our whole operation. I said I couldn't do it right then because I was full-time employed and I had done those kinds of things before and I knew you can't hold a full-time job and do that kind of thing. It's just not the same thing. So I said, I I don't think so right now. But then they said, well, we're having an audit done of our finances right now. The board had commissioned a law firm in New York to put together an audit right after the stories were put together, right in late January. And I said, uh, okay. Uh, They said, after that is done, which would take about a month, they said, let's let's talk about this again. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to talk about it again. I didn't think I'd be able to do anything, but yeah, let's talk. The problem was that by the end of the month, uh, they were gone. And what happened during that month was that uh, law firm Simpson Thatcher did a review of the finances and concluded that all of the allegations in the media were basically incorrect. And what they did was they said that all of those allegations were incorrect, but it's pretty clear that these two guys have to be gone. These two guys who were the author of the success of this organization had to be gone. And that was even more confusing to me because not only did we have these stories that came out of nowhere that were all wrong and bad, but an independent third-party law firm concluded the same thing, that that they were wrong, that the stories were wrong, but that these guys had to go. Uh, Mm -hmm. That really didn't make any sense to me. 
And so I began to noodle on this uh, for the next several weeks. That volunteer called back and said, now what's going on? Now these guys are gone and even less makes sense. And during that spring, during the February, March, April time frame, or especially after March, after they were fired on March 9, 2016, um, during March and April, I gave a lot of thought to what I wanted to do. And this, I have to tell the both of you, Mary and Jennifer, that this is a, this is a passion of mine. Nonprofits that work well are so important to our society that we cannot allow anything to happen to this sector. It's just too important. And this was such a, an egregious story with such bad outcome. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I stayed up at night thinking about it. It wasn't personal to me in the sense that I had any connection to WWP. I didn't know Steve or Al, Steve Gardese or Al Giordano. They weren't friends of mine. It wasn't like there was any personal connection, but I was still driven from a professional mm-hmm. sense saying, this is just not right. And I had spent a lot of time, and I put this in the book too, I spent a lot of time in the past criticizing charities because there are some pretty bad players trying to act charitable. And, and, I, and I, I hate that. So I, I want to protect our sector. But here was a story going the other direction. You know, here was a good charity, it looked like, uh, where, the, where the allegations were incorrect. So I decided that spring and the end of the cal- uh, excuse me, the academic year was coming up. I'd been at Columbia for a while. Uh, the administration was changing. We had a new dean. And I was thinking, regardless, I might want to make a change. I might just want to retire. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy research. I enjoy writing. Uh, I do not enjoy going to uh, meetings at universities. Um, just so your your listeners will know, Columbia and both Columbia and, and New York University are highly regarded universities. They're among the best in the world. That will not change in my view. But being in, in the administration of either of those two large organizations, and this is I'm sure true with almost every other university in the United States is no fun because there's just a lot of, a lot of administration activity and more and more time was being taken away from my true love, which was teaching and and writing. So I decided to make a a career change, retire. And then on top of that, I wanted to spend time on this. I wanted to noodle on this. That's how important the story was to me. Nobody, nobody paid me a dime ever. And uh, the only time I got any remuneration was when somebody bought me lunch here in New York City when they came to visit me. Uh, So Mm -hmm. nobody, this was not done with money or for money. It was done because of what I feel is we need to protect a very sacred part of our society, that is the nonprofit sector. And and that's what drove drove this story. And, And it turned into the book, the report, as you said earlier, and then the book because the book uh, outlines all of what what went wrong and why. Wow. And I can I'm, relate to the doing it for the passion. And if you don't have passion, you don't need to be doing it. Well, that's why I wanted to spend a few minutes. I'm not trying to turn the tables here, but I do want to just highlight the fact that when we talked earlier, Mary, and when you joined us, Jennifer, on our three-way phone call, you told me you were a nonprofit, and you began this uh, be unique 
effort because of a passion. And Absolutely. I get that. You walked away from something else entirely, uh, probably much more remuneratively satisfying uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, because, of a, because of a passion. Um, and, you know, not all of us are going to go to GE and make $100 million a year. Not all of us are going to go to Facebook or to LinkedIn or to Apple, even though we might be qualified to do the work there to make the kind of money those people at the higher echelons anyway make. And why is that? Because because there are people in this world who really, really care about other people in the context of the way the nonprofit world addresses those concerns. And so what the nonprofit world does is unique. It, it does what neither government nor business will do. Neither one of those broad entities does what the nonprofit sector does because there's no profit in it. And there's no political gain in it. When I say there's no profit in it, let me be clear, because a lot of people have said, well, if it's a nonprofit, how can a charity make money? The reason it's a nonprofit is that there are no shareholders. The ownership of a nonprofit is that of the general public, as represented by two entities. Yes. And we need to keep that in mind. And so when you are a trustee or director of uh, on the board of a trust uh, of a charity uh, you have to keep that in mind that you are caretaking these assets for the for the good of the public and the overseer to that is the attorney general of each state and the IRS neither of which does a great job of overseeing uh, not because they're bad places I don't mean to say that but the reality is that there are a lot of charities and the oversight function is so large and the funding and budget for these activities is growing smaller and smaller that it's just becoming an impossible job. So over the last 10 to 20 years, I've noticed that the best oversight that the charitable sector can have and does have right now is provided through journalism. That's why when someone calls me from a newspaper or a radio station or I'm on a television program, I thank the journalist for taking the interest and say, I appreciate your interest in in how a charity works because this is how the public knows what goes wrong at charities. I used to teach when I was teaching at NYU. I had as one of my adjuncts a person who was at the charity um, Charities Charities Bureau at, at the New York State Attorney General's Office and they oversee the charity activity in New York State and she told me that most of their tips come from stories in the news uh, and that's how they first get wind that something is wrong at a charity. So the role of the of the of the press, and I use that word broadly. Um, that is to say, the media, and television, radio, and now uh, websites um, and podcasts uh, is crucial. Is crucial, uh, and I, I feel that, like for what you're doing and others, uh, is so crucial that without it, we would not have the same kind of oversight. And we need that because charities play such a such an important role in our world. So you can understand, I guess, when you when I say the passion is so crucial to me, 
but I just decided to make this this a, a big a big uh, production in my own life, and I hope people I hope people feel that, but I really hope people see what Wounded Warrior Project is, what these stories did. As I mentioned, it had a, a tremendously negative effect. So if I yeah. turn the court, if I can, I don't know, if I can turn the corner and go toward why CBS decided to be so negative and the effect on it, would that be okay for Dal? Can I do that with you guys? Sure. If you can, are you wanting to go into that right now? Well, I was just asking you. I'm, I'm at your service. No, you, you're, you're certainly welcome to, but give me just a moment for a break here. Oh, my gosh, yes. Here I am. Yeah. No, that's okay. We'll come, we'll come right back to that. I'm inspired to give back by the many individuals who are making a difference and taking steps to make the world better. Many people are tackling problems by themselves and thinking they are all alone in their efforts to make a change. I want them to know they are not going unnoticed. The world is watching. I'm part of a team helping to project their voices on a global scale. Small charities and solo entrepreneurs are doing amazing things but don't have the budgets to market themselves. Like many people, I once struggled in a variety of jobs I didn't care for. So I decided to find a new way to give back, to pay it forward, and to be the change. While some people my age are considering retirement, I've joined other professionals to create and manage a nonprofit organization called Peace Corps. The words that create our name tell only a small part of our giving story. We are philanthropists, educators, activists. We are compassionate, evolving, charitable, optimistic, responsible, and enthusiastic. We created Peace Corps so we can use our natural talents to help others. We work with nonprofits, individuals, and for-profit organizations that have a philanthropic outlook. Peace Corps uses several tools to give a voice to those that otherwise might not be known outside their small local circles. Be Unique magazine is released monthly and printed on demand. This digital interactive publication doubled in size within five months. During that same time, it attracted almost 60 volunteers from 12 countries and across the USA. These volunteers are professionals. They're performers and writers, editors, researchers, videographers, photographers, crew members, and so much more. Coffee or tea? No phones allowed? This fun show is hosted by millennials and provides insight into what they're thinking, but it's by no means intended to appeal only to that generation as evidenced by their topic and their guests. Because our volunteers know that we are giving 100% of our beings to this organization, they are meeting us on our terms. Nobody earns anything. Yet we all work as if we are earning six-figure incomes. That is the epitome of giving. Curating the stories and creating a high-quality literary-style publication that not only highlights the good work of others, but projects positivity and inspiration gives me purpose. By giving myself to this organization, others want to give to Peace Corps. We have created a global giving circle. Welcome back. This is Mary. I'm here with Jennifer East and Doug White, the author of Wounded Charity. And Doug has been fascinating, so fascinating that we 
have just about lost our time on the show. Uh, we have about 15 minutes left, and I really do want to hear you tell why you think CBS took that negative turn toward the Wounded Warrior Project. Yeah, time goes flying by when you're having fun. I know that's a cliche, mm-hmm. but I've been having a, a lot of fun talking to you, too, and I really appreciate the that's opportunity. so good. Well, and and I, I believe you have a lot more to say than we'll get in in an hour. So I'm going to ask you right now to let's make a plan to have you come back on the show another time. Let's do that because there's so much okay. uh, to unpack here. So let's let's uh, we'll we'll agree to that and we'll figure out the details later. But exactly. your question is why 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 does why does CBS take such a negative tack? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't until CBS got into the mix that the New York Times began changing its story. And so the question is, why does CBS get into the mix and why do they get into it negatively, especially when someone on the board, this is so not intuitive, when, when someone on the board is working at CBS. You would think, I mean, the average person, I would think that, um, hey, uh, there's somebody who works at CBS who's on the board of WWP is going to make sure that CBS does all the positive stories stories about WWP. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how is it possible that they would come up with such a horrible story about WWP? Well, yeah, the reason strange. I I have to tell you that I'm speculating here because nobody on the board would talk to me. Doesn't that sound horrible? But they wouldn't. Um, That's and by strange. the way, just to, just to kind of like jump to the very end of the story line is that I do blame the board for all of this. I, I, I think the, the board was culpable for pretty much everything here. All right, so one of the board members was Richard Jones, this person who worked at CBS. He also had uh, relationships with other nonprofits. He's a very well-known guy and highly regarded guy in the veterans administra- excuse me, the veterans space and does a lot of work for CBS in the veterans space. A lot of large companies, as you may realize, uh, have uh, sections of their work dedicated to helping veterans in whatever way or another. He, he's been one of the best and one of the most vocal and, and uh, has a tremendous resume in this regard. On top of that, he's also in charge of CBS's finances. He's the senior vice president for finance of CBS Corporation. Oh, wow. But, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and by the way, when I talk about um, – Dave Phillips at the New York Times and Chip Reed at uh, CBS or or uh, Richard Jones, uh, I, I criticize them on what they did. I don't I don't impugn their character. I, I feel that these people are trying to do good things in the world, but they really did bad things in this this particular case. But they're, they're not bad mm-hmm. people. So let's just understand that's where I'm coming from. Um, he had relationships with other organizations that did not have good relations with Wounded Warrior Project. As I mentioned earlier, they grew, grew quickly and they, they generated a lot of criticism. And so a lot of charities were basically jealous, you know, like, why can't we get that money? You know, and, and uh, there were about, you know, there are thousands of uh, veterans organizations in the United States. And I can't go into the details of why this is. So just, permit me to say this as a general truth, most of them are poorly run. They just don't have a large impact. They're not 
poorly motivated, but they just they don't have the money, they don't spend it that well, and it's just a bunch of stuff there. But they're not bad people, but there are thousands out there. And so Richard Jones is involved with a couple of others, and he still is, that did not have good relations with WWP. And I, I feel very strongly that jealousy was a large part of it. And, and he felt like these other organizations uh, really deserve to have more money come in, or they deserve to have a better reputation, or they deserve to have a higher ranking or whatever. Um, and WWP was standing in the way. That's number one. But number two, number two and much more tangible, is that he was also and is very connected to the Defense Department. Now, it's for our listeners right now, it's important to make this distinction that the, the Defense Department, which is basically overseeing all of our active duty personnel, is a very different organization from the Veterans Administration, which basically tries to help our veterans. The world yes. between active duty personnel and veterans is amazingly disparate. So, I, and I learned this in my research. I thought, well, these guys have a great handoff. They're all kind of going in the same direction. On paper, they are, but in practice, a lot of veterans have difficulties that uh, that uh, you would not expect them to have. And the relationship with the Defense Department isn't all that that isn't the same, isn't as strong as many people would think. So, Richard Jones has. Uh, relationship, a good relationship with the Defense Department. Not a bad thing in its own right. But here's the kicker. the You just mentioned that you saw these ads on television. These ads were the most effective fundraising tool possibly by any charity in the history of the United States. It's called DRD TV, Direct Response Television. Uh, they are very expensive to get going, to, to crank up, but they are also the most efficient when you talk about fundraising costs and that kind of thing, they're the most efficient. Even though they're expensive to get going, they return the most for the, for the dollar. Those ads were offensive to the Department of Defense because uh. they showed people coming back from war wounded. And this was offensive to the Department of Defense because the narrative went like this. If people see, they watch these ads and they see veterans coming back wounded, they might not want to sign up for service. And I, I think there's a legitimacy to that concern. I'm not going to argue that they, that was a ridiculous concern. It's not. I did my own research on that particular point and found that it did not affect um, force readiness, which is their phrase for recruitment, and other ways to get people, men and women, into the armed forces. Uh, it did not affect negatively the um, the force readiness numbers, but that was their that was their stated concern, and they really didn't like those ads. They really, really wanted those ads off. In fact, the former Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Michael Mullen, uh, asked Steve Nardizzi to take them off, and he didn't. And Steve Nardizzi said, "Look, you know, basically, he didn't say it. I would have said this, but Steve is much more politic than I would be." He said uh, that he wouldn't take these ads off, that they were very effective, and nobody was being used. Everybody wanted who was on the ads wanted to be on the ads, and it was an effective fundraising mechanism. It was also a, an effective education uh, process for people who were watching, because when we think about veterans, uh, we're not really being confronted front and center with the disabilities 
in their physical as well as emotional. And that are, the whole point of Wounded Warrior Project is to address those issues. So they felt correctly, I believe, that these ads would, would send that message. So there was, a, there was a goal to basically neuter that message. It, it was too raw, too, too negative for a lot of the people. And so that was the first, when they were fired in the, and, and Wounded Warrior Project got a new CEO, after they were fired, I should say, before they got their CEO, their new CEO, those ads were the first to go. They went off the air immediately. And, so they were working uh, too well. They were working too well. That's right. And sending, from the DOD's perspective, the wrong message. Now, the key thing to remember here is that although that, that actually has some resonance to me, I, 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 I sympathize with that argument. But when, when, as in sports, if you have a basketball team that wins a basketball game by 100 to 99, there's a victor and there's a loser. But the loser still scored 99 points. So the, the loser wasn't chopped liver, okay? It was a strong, right. strong argument there. So I can understand this argument, but it was not as strong as, as Wounded Warrior Projects was to raise the money to do their work. And, and the, so they kept the ads on, and that's one of the reasons they were fired. The two guys were fired. And so now they have a much more milk toast relationship with DOD, and those ads are, are a, lot, a lot less uh, raw than they used to be. That, I think, was the goal. And I think Richard Jones well, played a very large role in that speculation. Unfortunately, um, you know, someone as big as the DOD can dictate certain things, and it, it's sad because um, the two, you know, WWP and DOD work together. So, <coughs> I mean, the ultimate goal is to serve veterans. But yes. I think the DOD was thinking, well, we won't have any veterans for you to serve if we can't keep our recruitment up. And it's kind of um, a little twisted way of looking at that. But that's that the way the, the machine works. Yeah. That would be the extension of the logic, is what I was going to say. You're absolutely correct. I think that is yeah. that is a that is the argument, and it is twisted. Um, look, I, I say this at the very beginning of the book. First of all, let let me just say the charities, including WWP, are the sentinel of our public trust, and that's why we have to maintain the independence and the, the integrity of charities. There is that, but then on top of that. Uh, where do veterans fit into this? And veterans are America's treasure. You know, without without their service and that of their fallen comrades, who knows what this country would be? Um, the consequences to the United States would be totally unthinkable. So I want this to be seen as a an ode to the veterans. And I also feel very strongly that we need a, a good military and and I know that many people will disagree about this the size of the mil- what the size should be and what our objectives should be but those are political consequences of military decisions and we're not in that sphere when we talk about helping veterans in the nonprofit level so I uh, totally understand robust <laughs> that's a, I guess a good way to put it uh, de- debates can take place about the role uh, of uh, or, or the the policies that politicians make 
and the way the military executes those decisions. That's all great, and, and that's not my wheel, wheelhouse. But in terms of the veterans, uh, the, the reality is, and this, I spent an hour and a half with Dave Phillips on this very point. That's why I felt so, I felt betrayed by his story. We both agreed. I said, look, in a perfect world, the Veterans Administration would take care of the veterans. And he said something that I agree with even more. And he said, in a perfect world, there would be no wars. I said, good for you. Let's have a drink on that one. Um, yeah, that's a cliche right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, it's not the truth. I mean, that's not the way the world turns. So let's, let's figure out how to, how to deal with these veterans. If it were up to me, we would take a lot more care on a government level uh, to make sure these guys and gals come home and are, are, are well, well cared for. They're not uh, through the veterans organizations. That's why we see these uh, nonprofits spring up all over the place, these well-meaning nonprofits, and they augment what the, what the Veterans Administration does. Uh, and this is – people might hear the Veterans Administration say, well, you're so corrupt for the last, oh, I don't know, century. Uh, and, yeah, they've had their, their issues. But even if they were a real well-running machine, the Veterans Administration should, still couldn't take care uh, of, of what they need to take care of with regard to our, our wounded men and women coming home. That's why these mm-hmm. nonprofits are so important. Uh, and so they, they do need to have good relationships. But it's also true that Wounded Warrior Project before this crisis had good relationships with not only the DOD, other than for the ads, because they didn't like the ads, but also with the Veterans Administration. They were working closely right. to make sure that uh, that there was a good handoff and that there was a, a way for the veterans to get their benefits from the Veterans Association. And where there wasn't a benefit, that was deemed worthy, the organizations like Wounded Warrior Project would come in and, and, and fill that gap. WWP worked with many, many charities around the country because, you know, they're a national organization and many veterans organizations are local. And so they can't do the same things that WWP does. But it's also true, and this is something they knew, WWP can't do the kind of local work that a lot of the local organizations do. So they were helping them do that financially. Right. So there was there's a lot of work for the uh, you know the interaction of these organizations to to help to help veterans. Yeah, I have to interrupt you. I have to run one quick little ad, and then I want to come back and make sure everybody knows how to contact you. Sure. If you like the show tonight, let us know. Call 321-417-4309 or email mary at beunique.org to ask how you can sponsor the show. It's simple and doesn't have to cost much at all. Visit beunique.org for even more details. That's B-U-N-E-K-E dot org. Okay, we are back. Doug, tell everybody how they can reach you, how they can buy your book. And um, then we'll discuss another time how we're going to have you back on the show because there's a lot more to talk about. There really is. And I thank you for your interest. I I can see you're interested and have a a sincere interest in making this issue uh, front and center with uh, not only your listeners, but also everyone else in the United States. And thank you for the opportunity for helping me. You're very welcome. Spread that word. Doug, I have Uh, my own wounded warrior as a son. So, it's a, oh. it's a very dear subject to me. 
Well, then, I'm speaking to someone directly involved. And it's funny. Yeah. It's not funny, but it's interesting how many people have a loved one who has who served. And um, the words escape me right now, but thank you. Thank your son for me, for his service. You're very welcome. Um, the, um, my email address uh, is open to the world. It's dwhitepg, that's D-W-H-I-T-E, P is in Paul, G is in giving, uh, at gmail.com. And I welcome anybody, and I get back to everybody who, who writes. And, um, you know, so we, we could always set up a phone call if one wishes, but we can do that through there. But uh, all of my, my information is on, on my website as well, D-White, excuse me, dougwhite.net. And uh, uh, just Google it and you'll find it. But that's the email is the best thing because, you know, I'll get it and uh, I'll respond to it. Excellent. Oh, Thank way, you so it. much for Hello. being with us tonight. I, I look forward to talking with you again because there's a lot of, I think I asked you one question and then you just took over the show. I've got more questions for you. I want to ask for another time. <laughs> and my, my apologies. My no, do not apologize. You, you're the ideal guest. I ask one question, and I don't have to ask any more. This was great. I really, really, really appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate being with you. And thank you for what you're doing for nonprofits, because you're right. Philanthropy is such um, a, it's a much-needed entity in this world, um, because we can't rely on the governments to do the things that need to be done. Yes, that's correct. So with that, I will say good night. And good night to you and thank you. You're welcome. Good night, good night Jennifer. Great show. Thank you. listening this evening. We're happy you chose to spend this time with us, and we hope you learned as much as we did. Be sure to come back the first and third Thursday of each month for more exciting guests, and if you'd like us to invite you or someone you know to speak right here, just go to beunique.org and contact us there. B-U-N-E-K-E dot org.